This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast. Joining me tonight on a dreary dreary wednesday night in atlanta uh jeff siegel he is a writer at peachtree hoops who i've been reading for just a very long time now and uh he had this great write-up on daniel hamilton as we were talking about before we got started recording and i was like okay this is it he's on the podcast he's won me over the daniel hamilton piece was enough to uh have me reach out to get jeff on the podcast tonight because jeff is uh he's very knowledgeable about basketball and we're gonna talk about some nba stuff tonight jeff good evening how are you doing well how are you I am good, man. Um, yeah, you're not because you're a native Atlanta guy, right? Or you went uh, to- I went to school in Atlanta, but now I'm out in uh, California. Gotcha. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and guess that uh, the weather in San Diego is a little bit better than it is in Atlanta right now. It is very nice here. Um, everything is fantastic. That's pretty much the way San Diego tends to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pretty much vacillate between uh, like 65 and 75 for about. 350 days out of the year and it's pretty nice i'm uh, i'm pretty happy with it i didn't want to ask that now i i understand why i didn't need to know that jeff i didn't need it's, to know that it's really it's really something that that people are jealous of which makes sense i mean they should be but is the uh, zoo for real like I, that's something like since i was a little kid people talked about the zoo i remember my parents talking about like taking me to the san diego zoo is that a thing is that a yes. real Cool the zoo is a real thing that is really much better than any other zoo. Really? Uh, okay. There are other zoos in the world that are very good, but the San Diego Zoo is in that top tier of zoos on the planet. Uh, they have, because the temperature is so mild and tropical, they can have lots of different types of animals without it being like, oh, well, we can't have that because it doesn't do well in cold. Or mm-hmm. it, we can't have that because it doesn't do well in hot. We sort of have both, but neither really, because it never really vacillates. I mean, in the dead of winter, it's 50 degrees at night. And in the heat of summer, it gets to 88, you know, with no humidity. So it's not like we're vacillating with, you know, from, you know, mid 30s to, you know, upper 90s into the hundreds. And when you think about, I guess, the animals, that you would want to see at a zoo that are different and interesting. A lot of those animals probably come from sub-Saharan Africa, rhinos, lions, tigers, etc. Elephants, giraffes, all those things that you think about when you think about sub-Saharan Africa. And we've got a very similar client to sub-Saharan Africa, so they survive very well here. Hmm. I need to go. I've never been to San Diego. My, it's really fun. And that's my understanding of San Diego is all ever from Drake and Josh. That is what I assume San Diego is, that is like. Show? set in san diego it is oh wow all right well that's interesting yeah i watched um, the show went up but uh but i, I think never... the show's house which was i believe the brady bunch house it got torn down recently i want to say um and okay it's in la it's not in san diego but uh um, sure because they, they, yeah. they don't actually tape stuff down here yeah but uh leave the dreams alone and uh that's that's what i'll say about san diego but uh we're not going to talk about the San Diego Zoo anymore. Do you know what we're going to talk about? The Atlanta Hawks, Jeff, that uh, you and I are very familiar with this team. Um, this is a team that I guess we could say is kind of playing better than we would have expected at this point in the season. Um, the bottom hasn't fallen out yet. Vince Carter is doing some fun stuff. Trey Young is already putting on a clinic passing-wise. I think his assist rate is like 46% right now. Um, first thing I want to ask you, though, and this has – I mean – what is working with this Hawks team? When you're watching them, what do you see that you're like, okay, that that's something to look out for. That's clicking. Um, Lloyd Pierce has gotten this working. Maybe it's a rotation. Maybe it's just um, a certain kind of play calls, certain kind of pick and roll coverage. What what do you see right now? 
I think the two biggest things that are working in their favor are the their shot profile is really just fantastic right now. It's right up there with the best shot profiles in the league. And that what I mean by shot profile for somebody who doesn't know what that means is where their shots are coming from. Not whether the shots go in or out, mm-hmm. but where do they come from? So they rank like fourth in at and shots at the rim. Not necessarily whether they go in or not, but just how many of what, what percentage of their overall shots come at the rim. That's obviously very good. They rank first in corner threes. They rank like third in overall threes. It's very uh, – those are the shots that you want. Everybody who understands the math of, of the NBA right now, you want to get to the rim or shoot threes. And you don't want to shoot mid-range jump shots, and they don't. And it's – so I think offensively, that's the biggest thing that is been positive about them through eight, through nine games, through ten games, however many games they've played. I think they're playing their tenth game right now as we speak. So by the time you hear this, some of those ranks might be a little bit outdated, but whatever. Um, the, the point is is that their shot profile overall looks very good, and I think that's – I don't know whether that's a Lloyd Pierce thing because he's not really an offensive coach. He's more of a defensive coach, and right. their offense – I was talking about this with somebody earlier today – their offense – looks very similar to the way it looked under bud it's very much a movement and ball movement man movement they even use the same like ball reversal entry into most of their half court sets that they always use for the last five years under budenholzer the only guy the only coach who was a holdover from budenholzer staff to pierce's staff is a guy named chris gent who has mm-hmm. was with pierce in uh in cleveland so they knew each other so gent stayed on rather than going to milwaukee and the offense looks the same and gent was always sort of an offensive guy so i want to give him credit without knowing that i should be giving him credit but i'm thinking he's the guy to to give credit to for for what their offense looks like so i think shot profile and the way their offense looks has been a positive so far and obviously they're getting good contributions offensively from a number of different guys and then on the other end Half-court defense has been much better than expected. I don't expect it to continue, but there's not a whole lot great defensively at this point. The offense, despite being either dead last or 29th in offense right now, they're, they're, they, they rank out better defensively, but they're, yeah. I think they are better offensively. They just can't stop turning the ball over. So maybe it's like a Dwayne Casey, uh, Nick Nurse thing that Toronto went through where Chris yeah, maybe. is the uh, Nick Nurse offensive coordinator kind of thing. And that seems like where the NBA is going anyway. It seems like a lot more coaching staffs are being like if you're an offensive minded coach like Dan Tony, you bring in Jeff Bezedlik to kind of um, help uh, fill some of the gaps that you just can't you can't fill on your own. You also don't like it's just that's not your area of expertise, but it, there is something to just being like, OK, this is not something that I'm going to be able to put together to get us to where we need to be like i need to bring in somebody else who can do that and i wonder if that's part of the rationale for i mean you know like you said with the cleveland stuff with pierce and jim but i wonder if that was also something that was going into the thinking of not only pierce but um travis schlink too of just like um to ease the transition to his first head coaching job for lloyd pierce is just to have an offense that is gonna be suitable to work in today's nba because ultimately um as we've seen in the NFL and certainly in the NBA right now is that um, having a good offense is more important than having um, a bunch of impressive defensive like just length and just destruction and guys who can do all this fun stuff like the magic i mean they have a bunch of intriguing defensive pieces but the magic are not good and have not been good for years and you just need shooting like to survive in the league you have to shoot and there's a lot invested in trey young obviously um kevin huerta and amari spellman and the list is going to continue so ultimately you had to have someone who's going to help like you said put together an offensive shot chart that uh works in today's game and it's just a good looking offense and like you said the shots aren't falling i mean i believe they're like 28th in offensive rating as we uh talk right now but um if you watch the games the shot selection is on point trey young is doing all the stuff that you would hope he would be doing right now he's shooting like 28 percent from three so um that's not where it needs to be but ultimately um, it's his rookie year and I wouldn't make too much of it right now, especially considering how well he's passing. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting. Yeah. And I think the the big thing with that, everybody needs to shoot threes is like, well, if you have five three point shooters out there, like five JJ Reddicks are not going to be a good offense. You need guys who can create those mm-hmm. open shots, 
for their teammates and guys who can knock them down. The, the Hawks really have both, and they, they probably don't have like the high-level J.J. Redick-type shooters, but they do have some, you know, some very solid shooters in Torian Prince, Kevin Herter, Trey Young, supposedly. He, he, gain, he has a lot of the respect of a great shooter without really having the numbers quite yet. I mean, teams really trap him in pick and roll, and he just eviscerates that because he's just such a good passer. And he's got vision for a six foot two guy who's probably not even, like, he's maybe six foot. Like, he's not really six two, he's just listed there. He he can see the floor so well for somebody his size, and he sees around and over guys and can throw these these one-handed passes cross court, both hands. It's very he's been very impressive as a passer. And the biggest thing about their offense that has dragged them down to be bottom three in the league is that they just cannot stop turning the ball over. They turn yeah. the ball over like one out of every five possessions, which it's is just sloppy. ridiculous. Yeah. It's um, but it, that's what you expect with a young backcourt like this and kind of just they're figuring things out and a lot of guys that haven't played together. And I feel like that's a continuity thing where um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would assume I mean, the Spurs have been incredible at this this year. Like if you look at their turnover rate and what they're doing, it's amazing how Popovich finds just different ways to win basketball games with uh, the mid range assassins and uh, LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan. But part of it is that uh, they don't turn the ball over ever. And they're just super smart, and the Hawks are the exact opposite when you watch them. It's just, it's very sloppy and very uh, all over the place. But they're young, so I don't really care about that. What I do think is interesting, I wonder if you're uh, thinking the same way here, is we haven't gotten to see much. Like Amari Spellman got entered into the starting four spot um, a few days ago, so he's gotten some run there. And I wonder, because John Collins has been out, if Lloyd Pierce, because of just what he would do in Philadelphia where like he he loved um funneling guys on the perimeter into Embiid right like that's what he loves to do his defensive style is like he wants to force people inside to contested shots at the rim and he likes having solid rim protectors like Alex Lynn and um uh, Dwayne Dedman who might be on the move but like I wonder if he is thinking long term that John Collins and Amari Spellman can play next to each other um at the four and the five, or if it's going to be a situation where it's actually going to have to be one or the other, and uh, he's going to end up trusting Alex Lynn, or hopefully not Plumley, or um, just uh, Deadman. Uh, what, what do you make of that potential pairing, and how much time they'll get together um, once they're healthy at the same time and get uh, consistent play? Yeah, I think when Collins gets back out there, it'll be really interesting to see how much center he gets to play. You know, with if Lennon and Deadman are on the team throughout the season, they're going to get the vast majority of the center minutes. I That's mean, we're talking too, yeah. 44 of the 48 minutes. Maybe they throw Collins out there for a little bit. They throw Spellman. Spellman is is now getting some minutes at the at the five. I think he played against Charlotte. He might have played maybe eight to 10 minutes at the, at the five there, but that's Charlotte and they go real small sometimes with MKG at center. So that's a little bit of a different team, you know, and Spellman's the thing is, is it's hard to know where Spellman sort of fits right. long, long term. Like after this year, where does he really fit? Is he more of a four or more of a five? You know, he can't re- he's not going to protect the rim very well. He's just not very good at that. Collins in his rookie year was not also, he was also not very good at that. So it's going to be interesting to see if Lloyd Pierce will change up that style a little bit to try to sort of make up for some of their weaknesses, especially if those two are the you know the two starting big men long term. You, you play Collins at the four and Spellman at the five, or however you want to do that. Neither one of them is a is a Joel Embiid like rim protector. Right. Collins has all the athleticism in the world looks profiles like a good weak side shot blocker but that's different from being just a tried and true rim protector and then Spellman's not either one of those things so where he fits in is going to be really interesting defensively I think as we you know as as we're looking at it right now if we're trying to plan out what this team looks like in 2021 Spellman's not going to be a starter on that team I don't think he's a backup center which is fine with the 30th overall pick four years of team control if they get the if they get the, the a backup center out of him that would be perfectly fine but i do think that long term like real long term by the time this team is back in the playoffs if collins is still starting at the four and i do think he's more of a power forward even though he's mm-hmm. more of an old school power forward than a center he's he, kind of like kylo quinn to me 
Yeah, a little bit, I guess. Collins is just he's he's more athletic, I think, than Kylo Quinn. Yeah. And just more just bouncy and, and has is going to show when he gets back to full health this season and maybe even into next season before he's really back into full health. Because this 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 injury was supposed to be nothing and now it's mm-hmm. been something and it's gonna continue to be something. So his injury's a little weird. I wonder if we're gonna look up at the end of the year and say, Oh wow, Collins only played twenty five games this year. How'd that happen? He was day to day forever, and like that's just the way. I don't know. I get the feeling that there's a lot to that th- this injury might continue to to plague him this season. But with and Collins, no it's so, not like they're trying to win games this year. They're not, not at all. Risk uh, John Collins going out there and really injuring himself um, if he's not 100. percent I, I I think we can um, be certain of that. I I would say. Yeah, and I think he they would like to see him just and see what his you know, how his skills have developed since last mm-hmm. season. I know he, you know, was working more from the perimeter, working on his corner threes, working on being able to to give a pump fake and drive to the rim or just try to get past his guy on his own. So they'd like to see him out there, obviously, but if he's even a little bit hurt, there's no reason to to rush him back. I just want to see if he can play the five for 36 minutes a night. If he can ever get there, then I'm on the John Collins train. If not, I think he's like Jeremy Grant which is fine. Sure. He's a useful yeah, player seems... in OKC, but like that's his ceiling if that's not where he can get. Like it's just the value between like a 36-minute rim protector with a guy like Collins at the 5 is significantly more valuable than having to play him at the 4 and potentially another non-shooter at the 5 as well. So, I I don't know. He's, I'm still He's a lot closer to Jeremy Grant than he is a starting So not off base there extent. with that comparison. Okay. No, I mean he's he's probably got a little bit more like ball skills than grant but grant's smarter like just across the board and yeah. and it's not bad know, i mean Jeremy the athleticism really valuable player. is relatively similar it's just he's not an all-star and no. uh, guys like that you have to hit on some of these guys and if john Collins is an all-star and amari spellman's a backup five and um then a lot more pressure is on kevin Huerter and uh trey young obviously because... and they'll just need a they'll need a big man at some point and maybe at the right. top of the the 2019 draft zion they Williamson. Draft Come zion on williamson and all of a sudden everything is solved because he can play all five positions you know and yeah. it's it might be something like that it you know mm. there i don't think the the this the center of the future the big man in the middle of the future is not on this team right now i don't think yeah, i would agree which makes uh, this midseason kind of interesting because I don't know which of these four uh, with Deadman, Lynn, and uh, Collins, and uh, Spellman, how it's all going to unfold, but it will be interesting to monitor. Um, I want to ask you, and this is, I, I, I guess maybe I'm obsessed with like player comparisons, but like the more I watch Torian Prince, like I was in on Torian Prince um, a couple of years ago. I always liked him. I thought he should have gotten more opportunities to uh, bring the ball up himself and just see what he can do as a, um, a guy who could maybe play some point forward. And if he could, they could lock with, but Budenholz are kind of unlock something with him that he could uh, become that kind of player, especially when he's that young. Um, I would have like to see what that would have looked like um especially more so than Dennis Schroeder doing whatever he was doing especially last year at the one but um I think he might just be like Harrison Barnes or like a poor man's auto porter that's where I'm at he's like shooting 33 percent from three right now he's shooting like six threes a game he's a smart player he's a good defender um ostensibly and he he fades a lot you don't know sometimes you forget he's on the court he has that kind of vibe and that's why part of the reason i wanted him to see if he could become that uh wing who could bring the ball up from time to time and get a rebound and push um because you just worry i guess maybe with these wings that have uh that go in the lottery that have this upside that are interesting that can clearly turn into some good shooters they have the size they have the length they should be able to get to the line a lot you just don't want them to fall in the andrew wiggins zone where you just forget that they're there and you're like oh god someone's gonna pay this person a lot of money and they're just not that kind of player they're just they 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 fade away and um i don't know I, i mean he's averaging 15 5 and 3 right now um, like I said, 33% shooting from deep, but uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm selling a lot of my uh, Torian Prince stock, and I'm worried that this franchise is going to pay him. I would I would say that I would be worried about that if Kevin Herter didn't look like he was going to take Torian Prince's spot as the, the, the wing three. of the future. Okay. Um, I think Prince, Prince hasn't gotten that much better over his career and he was a four-year guy at Baylor and came in his rookie season on a a decent Hawks team in uh, in 16-17 
and was fine. Like I think he was he was decent defensively, wasn't much of a shooter, didn't have the ball skills. Then last year showed a little bit more of the ball skills, elevated himself into being a 40, you know, 40 plus percent three-point shooter, mm-hmm. which I think he still is. He's shooting 33% right now, but he's a 38, 39, 40% three-point shooter. Mm-hmm. The shot is real with him. Yep. Unfortunately, I think that's the only part of his game that's real. The defense that showed up the first year just disappeared last year and hasn't shown up again yet this year i don't think you know i don't i think for all the the length and size that he has he doesn't play with enough force and he just doesn't he's not as engaged as i'd like him to be he's just not as he's just not as good defensively as he was his rookie year like he's regressed since his rookie year on that end of the floor maybe it's because he's got more of an offensive load on his on his shoulders he's taking more shots he's playing more minutes all of that stuff makes sense a little bit but it was that the three and d wing that they want him to be the the three is there and the d is not and he's his somebody i think his his shot selection also leaves something to be desired he's he's the only guy on this team who shoots consistently from mid-range which is obviously not what they're looking for they want him to shoot threes or get to the rim he doesn't have the explosiveness to really get to the rim so when people run him off the three-point line he'll take these like one dribble pull-ups that are just not good shots like just move it He's not, and he's not a good passer. So like when he's, when he's trying to be, if he, if, if you wanted him to play this sort of point forward role, he's just not good enough as a passer to do that. And it's not just this year where he's got this astronomical turnover rate. He's had that his entire career. Like Mm -hmm. he's just, he turns the ball over. Like it's his job to turn the ball over. Like it's just, that's what he, who he is right now. And I don't know that he's going to 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 move past that i don't think i mean he's already what 25 or 26 you know he'll be 26 i think at some point you know in the near future he's you know we're we're getting to the point where he sort of is what he is you know and i'm i'm a big proponent of veteran development and the fact that guys 29 30 31 can add to their games in meaningful ways to unlock certain skills that that we didn't know they had but he. Prince has had some opportunities to play with the ball in his hands, especially down the stretch last year. He, you know, even opening this season, he's been more of a secondary ball handler, more so than Kent Bazemore has been. Which and the, the, right the results move, just think. aren't really there, you know. So I don't I'm not a, a huge believer in Torian Prince. I think he has the potential to get there as a three and D guy, but he needs to know his role offensively as a three-point shooter and ball mover. And you're not He's not going to be, you know, he needs to either shoot when he's open or move the ball when he's not and not really try to create too much for himself. And then the defense, you know, just needs to pick up to be at least average before he's, you know, really a starting level player. Speaking of defense, um, I need to get your thoughts on this. Kevin Huerter, if you look at his uh, um, his defensive rating uh, with different lineups, so I was looking around at different lineups that he's been playing with and what works and what doesn't. And it just seems like he is someone who is already making an impact. I mean, yes, the shot's already there. He's shooting above 40% from deep um, early on uh, this season. But um, the most impressive thing is his defense where, like, um, I'm going to do another comparison here, and we'll see if this one's on base. I think he might be like Danny Green to me. Whew, that is aggressive on the defensive side. I I'm not seeing that I side mean, of Green, it took a while. People forget. I mean, he was, it did take league. a while for him. It took a while, but he has the same kind of side. Like there's just some things about the way he moves that just reminds me of Danny green, a young, young Danny green, where like, if he plays in the system, he plays for a defensive minded coach. You see the way he moves around. He knows how to shoot. He knows how to get open. He's going to come off screens for the next 17 years and get paid. Like he's going to be in the NBA for like 18 years. Like he's just oh, yeah. already a really smart player. Um, I just think, maybe this is part of the reason that I was so annoyed about the Clay Thompson stuff where I'm like, no, he's not. No, no. Mari Spellman's not Draymond and uh, Clay Thompson, uh, or Kevin Huerta is not, and I'm going to keep doing the Huerta. It's just so much fun to say. <laughs> um, I refuse to go the other way on that. Um, I, I don't think it was ever going to be the right thing because when I watched him, I was like, I don't know. This is not happening. And obviously like there's only like one Clay Thompson. And those guys don't come around very often. Just like Steph Curry's don't come around very often. But um that doesn't mean Herter can't be a really solid three and D guy. And I think he just, I think best case scenario is 
Danny Green, who, by the way, is the second best player, arguably, on the best team in the East right now. So, you know what? There's worse things than being like a a Danny Green type in today's NBA. Sure. Um, Herder is nowhere... Well, it's so it's hard it's hard to say is he a young Danny Green? Danny Green until like last year was not able to dribble a basketball more than mm-hmm. once in a row. And Herder is like a real creator. Like he mm-hmm. can he can get to the rim on his own. He can play and pick and roll. He is not he's closer to Bradley Beal offensively than he is oh, wow. Danny Green. He has that like he's a Bradley real passer Beal. and a real dribble. Like he can really do some stuff with the ball in his hands. Okay. In a way that Danny Green still can't and never was able to. So like hmm. offensively, he is a little bit he I would say he's a little bit closer or his his long-term ceiling. Obviously, he's not fantastic really right now. He's neither one of those guys right now, but long-term ceiling if he keeps up the way he's been playing, the way they're using him right now, the way the 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 way he plays right now is closer to Beal than it is Danny Green, I think. You know, the way he can That's pass. I mean, if you're a Hawks fan, he can shoot the ball, and it's obviously shooting is is the marquee skill. But right. he's like almost just as good a passer as he is a shooter. Like he's not Trey Young as a passer, and he's not going to be somebody that you need to give what you know ten pick and rolls a game. Right. But if he pumps and and drives a closeout it's not like oh my god he's dribbling the ball everybody call 911 because this is not going to end well he's going to dribble you know he he can dribble and he can pass and he can see the floor really well he's a he's a very very high level passer already Which is huge uh, playing next to trey young so when trey young is doing those pick and rolls and he swings it to kevin Hoyter, um it it's not just like oh he has to catch and shoot he can do other stuff he can do other stuff and he can recycle the ball back to young. If young p- drives kicks and then runs out to the corner, like Steph Curry does, mm-hmm. and they're still working on getting him to move after he passes the ball. He doesn't quite do that enough yet. Trey doesn't, but yeah. if Trey does that and then Herter pumps and takes two dribbles and then finds, uh, finds Trey young in the corner. Now we're, you know, now they're, they're really looking at something. Now they're, they're getting two guys who can drive and kick and shoot the three at a very high level. And now they've, you know, now there's a, a real offensive backcourt there. And then defensively, I mean, I think he's probably still closer to Beal than he is Danny Green. Danny Green is a very high-level defender. Like Danny Green and Clay Thompson are on the same sort of tier defensively. Yeah. And Bradley Beal is like maybe average or slightly yeah. below average. And Herter is like at his peak will be maybe like an average defender. And right now is like fine but not – He's better it's than tough, I expected man. to be, but he's probably in the 35th percentile among all wings defensively. Like he's not mm-hmm. good. He's not average, but he's fine for yeah. a rookie for his size. He's got more size than you sort of expect him to have, but he doesn't have a great wingspan. He's very smart on that end. He's a good rebounder. He's a good um, he's a really good rebounder for his position, for his size especially. And and he's smart about crashing boards. He's smart about rotations, but just individually, he's not there will there will never be a time I don't think when Herter like Danny Green will be like oh go guard the other team's point guard yeah. like Kemba Walker Danny Green can guard Kemba Walker Kevin Herter will never be able to guard Kemba Walker I don't think so I think Which that's is a where scary if you're thinking about Trey Young and Kevin Herter long term yes their long term fit offensively seems very high and their right. defensive fit is really bad I think. Which, uh, because I mean, yeah, I don't know who you could pair with Trey Young to be like, oh yeah, we're solid on defense because he's just, and he's you know six one six zero and is just not super great on that end. Had some some good effort plays earlier in the year, but even just like last night against Charlotte, we're recording on Wednesday, so this is Tuesday night against Charlotte. A bunch of plays where Kemba like would get around him either in ISO or in a you know pick and roll situation. And Young just sort of stopped, and that's the that's what we saw from him a lot at Oklahoma. That's what was worrisome about his defensive effort because he had such a big offensive load. You know, everybody thought like, oh, well, he'll have a smaller load in the NBA, and he can focus a little bit more on the defense. But and it worked through the first few games, but it sort of waned even since then. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm I'm very very low on his defensive potential. And if Herder is tops out as average. 
it's going to be very difficult for them to have a, a solid defense, at the, especially just when you have two of those guys at the point of attack who are sort of ineffective. Yeah, and that's kind of why, I mean, when people are talking about, like, are they, instead of building Warriors East, they're actually building Blazers East, which makes sense yeah, to me. Yeah, that is a very good comparison. Um, Young is probably a better passer than Damian Lillard, but of course Lillard is is ten times is, is just such a great scorer right now. Mm-hmm. You know he's obviously you know he literally does everything. Zach Lowe's ten things this past week, um, identifying just how complete Damian Lillard has become as an offensive yeah. player. Where like his offensive game is just through the roof. He is so he's, so so good. Um, he would and appreciate young, him he, more if Steph Curry did not exist. It's just one of those things. It's got to be annoying for him where it's like, yeah, he, Steph Curry is the only reason that Damian Lillard is not this like universally just beloved point guard in the NBA. That's it. Yeah. If Curry, yeah, if Curry didn't exist or he, you know, the injuries caught up to him or whatever, if, if Lillard was the same player he is now and Curry wasn't around, we'd be talking about Lillard like we talk about Curry in terms of just like, this guy is just a game breaking offensive player and he still is. We just don't give him the, the, as much credit as Curry gets. And he, and I think Lillard gets into some, some funks that Curry doesn't get into. And Curry is, a, I, I would say that Curry is a smarter offensive player, despite some of the high profile turnovers. I do think he's a little bit smarter. And of course he plays in a system that is a little bit, higher level and accentuates his skills in a way that Lillard sometimes gets, but doesn't always get in in Portland. So, you know, if Trey can going back to Trey young, if Trey young can hit that upper echelon of the, of offensive players where he really, because he gets the respect of as an off the dribble shooter right now, but if he actually gets there to be that off the dribble shooter, then the the fact that he's, he's a better passer right now than Curry and Lillard have ever been Mm -hmm. and probably ever will be. And so Trey, can leverage his shooting and 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 passing. He's going to be a, a game breaking offensive player. As it is, he's not. He gets the respect, but isn't really that shooter yet. If that respect starts to wane, then the then he may be more of just a an above average offensive point guard rather than just a, a world beater offensive point guard. So you know we'll see on that end the defense is going to be an issue. And so it's, it's going to be hard for them to really build a high level defense with him out there. Cause it's not even, you know, it's not even like he can be hidden onto a bigger wing because he'll just get killed. Cause he's six Oh and, and yeah. like 170 pounds. And you know, that's not getting any bigger. He's not right. growing. You know, he's not, he's not going to come back and be six, three next year. So it's going to be a problem for them long-term for sure. Yeah. And that's uh if he's not a world beater offensive force then uh travis link's getting fired because uh Luka uh, Doncic is uh doing some doing some crazy stuff i mean it hasn't been all great deandre jordan uh sniping some rebounds away from luca um that i've enjoyed and luca not enjoying it as much but uh i don't know i can, i think that's part of the reason and this is the last thing i want to say about the hawk stuff i mean how much with what you've seen from luca and stuff like he does already look like an all-around superstar like he's going to be an offensive force for 20 plus years and if trey doesn't become like a damian lillard type where they can form blazers east i i think that's a that's a huge problem it is but i think the i mean obviously we're not going to know any even this year what that that uh, that trade is going to look like because the hawks also got that extra pick and so if that pick comes in seventh eighth even tenth if if the if the Mavericks put something together and are, are decent this year, yeah, then you know it's Trey Young and a the eighth overall pick in, in next year's draft yeah. against Doncic. And if Trey Young is not Damian Lillard, but is sort of what he is right now, or you know take with you know taking a, a normal steps forward, not superstar steps, but normal steps as a passer, as a reader of the game, he brings the turnovers down, but continues to be a, a high level passer gets the respect of, of being a high-level shooter. He's, he's finishing at the rim better than we would have thought at being, you know, 6-0, 6-1. You know, he's, he's a, an above-average finisher for a point guard already as a rookie, which is really solid. You know, he's if he's not Damian Lillard but is an above-average offensive point guard and is a massive neg- – you know, he's going to be a massive negative defensively probably. And then you add in they get a wing or a big man with the – eighth ninth tenth overall pick next year you can probably put those two together and schlenk can be like 
listen, these two guys are a big part of our rotation. Doncic might be an all-star, an all-NBA type player, but we've got we got more depth out of that trade, I guess. So I don't know that he – I think the early returns are that – that young has, has exceeded expectations for me already. So mm-hmm. it's hard for me to say like, Oh yeah, Schlenk might get fired over this trade because young's already better than I expected him to be. So it's yeah. sort of, it's already sort of working out. I think for both sides, I think both, both teams are obviously should be very happy with, with the results of the trade. Why isn't talent enough for Washington to be better than two and eight this early on in the regular season? And what I mean by that is, so when you think about the wolves last year, where clearly Jimmy Butler, Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, there was still something off last year. I don't think they enjoyed playing basketball with each other. But having those three on the same team and play 36-plus minutes together every night um, led to 50-plus wins, um, or the pace for 50-plus wins in the West. And you look at other teams that have done similar situations where it's like you're not really sure about the chemistry and it doesn't look great, but there's just something about just having a bunch of talent on the floor that just, especially in the regular season... Um, we'll just win you games that it shouldn't just because you are going to beat inferior competition. Um, I think the Cavs, um, late in the LeBron years, obviously, um, the Thunder from time to time over the years have done the same thing where it's like, I, I don't like the rest of these pieces around them. Their bench sucks, but they just have multiple top 20 NBA players or top 30 NBA players. And that's just enough to win a lot of regular season games. So I guess that's my biggest early surprise because people are panicking about the chemistry and it's not even that for me. It's just... It's weird to see Wall, Beal, Porter healthy and this team still just getting, I mean, destroyed. I mean, people have talked about the rebounding stuff, which obviously has been a problem for them. I think they're like 28th in offensive rebounding and 29th in defensive rebounding. But um, what what do you make of that perspective of just like, you know, talent just hasn't been enough to even get them to like 500 without Dwight and other uh, bigs to help their rebounding stuff? Like, what do you make of that? I mean, I think the the biggest thing with the Wizards that has sort of buoyed them over the last few years is that the defense could always be average, even though Beal and Porter are on the team. You know, but the the two of them, have, you know, but in your wing, your if you're building a team, you want three different things from your wing, your wing duo that the shooting guard and small forward. You're you're trying to find high level defensive stopper type a secondary creator and a high level three point shooter, you know, and if you can mix, if you can find all three of those skills in those two guys, that's, that's a high level wing core right there. And neither one of those guys are high level defenders. Bradley Beal is a high level three point shooter. So is Otto Porter. Bradley Beal can create for himself and for others as a secondary guy, but the defense wasn't there and the defense has never been there. And that's where, Things are sort of breaking down for them this year in particular because John Wall, his defense has fallen off a cliff. There isn't a cliff on the planet Earth that is high enough to really understand. Like he was one of the very best defenders in regardless of position in the entire league. And now he's like in the 20th percentile. Like he's worse than Beal on that end right now. Like he's just terrible and he's just not giving any effort. He's not. He's not doing any of the things that he was doing three or four years ago that, or even last year that was really pushing them to be an average defense. And then you add in that Dwight was hurt. Marcin Gortat is out and Jan Mahimi, who just committed a foul on me while I named his, you know, while I just called his name. He's been awful. He's terrible. And he can't, he can't defend without fouling. Even when he's in good position, I was watching one of their games earlier and he switched and then stayed with the guard for three, you know, for three dribbles, which is pretty good for a center. And then as soon as the the guy got to, you know, picked up the ball, Mahini like hand checked him and got called for foul. It's like you were perfectly in, you were in great position. Stop reaching with your hands. Just put your hands up and you'll be fine. And so, you know, he's he's frustrating just because he just can't stop fouling people and, and is not a, you know, a particularly good defender and not a particularly good rebounder, you know, like you alluded to with their, their terrible rebounding. So, you know, if wall is going to take this big step back and that's going to be more of a permanent thing for this season and then Gortat's out and it's Dwight and it's Jan Mahimi, 
that and and of course Beal and, and Porter, who are not high level defenders. Markeith Morris, who is fine, but nothing super special. He's been bad this year. Jeff Green, yeah. Kelly Oubre, like Austin Rivers is the backup point guard still for whatever reason, and not Tomas Sadoransky, who's playing thirty percent of his minutes at the three, which sure, whatever. Well, that's gone great. Um I I the Jeff Green stuff, not gonna believe this, but uh not working out early on um for the Wizards, but I, that's my bigger thing. If you look at the on-off numbers for their bench, they're just getting fucking destroyed. Like the starters have obviously to be two and eight, you're getting outscored, but it's like minus two point four for John Wall per hundred possessions. But you go to like Kelly Oubre, it's like minus fifteen. You go to Ian Mahimney, it's minus seven thousand. And um, I, I mean, it, the bench has always been an issue for Washington, but uh, it's never been this bad and when you have somebody like Dwight being gone and no Gortat it, and having to play Mahimni and relying on Jeff Green and Markeith Morris being almost 30 years old and he's kind of regressing and John Wall shooting 28% from three and um, Otto Porter's averaging 11 a game like it's just it's all just too much so it's it's not great but um, I don't know I feel like there's just so many different ways you could look at this wizard team and be like oh god how did it get like this but um I want to ask you, do you think it's weird that John Wall doesn't rebound better? Because it seems like we always talk about him and like, oh, he's like a like the Jason Kidd stuff or the the fast paced guy who like Russell Westbrook obviously does uh, steal some rebounds from guys and that kind of stuff. But like when you're that athletic lead ball handler, I mean, even James Harden and other guys like this, too, where they grab it and go. And John Wall is not a good rebounder. And I've never really understood why a player like John Wall is not a good one. I understand why Kemba's not. I understand why Damian Lillard's not. I understand why some of these point guards and lead ball handlers are not good rebounders. I don't really understand why John Wall isn't. John Wall is not a good rebounder this year. I think that's Mm -hmm. the one thing that we have to sort of specify is that John Wall's Defensive rebounding has fallen off a cliff. He's in the 18th percentile just among point guards. And he's physically one of the bigger point guards in the league, one of the most athletic point guards in the league. And his first, let's see, one, two, three, four, five seasons in the no, six seasons in the league, he was 85th percentile or better in defensive rebounding. For somebody like him, it should be, but also, you know, he's 28, has been through a lot of injuries, is just frankly not playing with a ton of effort right now. And defensive rebounding for a point guard is going to be a lot of effort kind of of Mm. stuff. You would hope that he can get better and you would expect that he can get better because he's been able to do this in the past. But if he's not locked in, and that's the one of the biggest things that you're seeing with him, with them and as a whole is that they're just not locked in because he's just, it feels like he's just totally checked out and he's just decided like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do do the, the the little things that I was doing before to keep this team afloat, especially defensively. You know, and his his block and steal percentages are still very good for a point guard, but the, I don't think that his overall team defense and obviously the rebounding has has fallen off in a, in a massive way over the last you know whatever eight nine ten games over over the first the first part of this season is what I'm trying to say. If you were Washington, who would you move with their big three? Or would you not move if, anybody? What what would you do if you're Ernie Gunfield? If you can, if you can without having to pay just this exorbitant price, Wall is the first one to go because his contract is just abhorrently bad after this year. You know, he's going to make $38 million next year and then 40 and then 42 and then like 44. And that's, you're stuck with that. And it's, if you can, if you can convince a team, anybody that John Wall can help you turn your point guard position around, then you, I think you you really I mean, do. Nick should do it. That's been my thing is I think John Wall makes too much sense for New York. New York's not getting Kevin Durant. They're not getting like we've been down this road too many times. It's not happening. Remember the CP3 being on the cover of uh, newspapers when he was going to become a free agent? It's going to be CP and Amari and um, Mello. They obviously got through trade, but like that's the only way they're getting a star is through trade. And like, that might be the only one who's like signing off. I don't believe in even the Kyrie stuff that like, that's the guy. Like if the, I, I don't know if you watched uh Trey Burke and uh, Frank Nilakina and uh, the backcourt rotation in New York lately, it's uh it's not great. 
And I'm not a believer in Nilakina as a lead ball handler. I think he's more of like a Marcus Smart guy, or I think he can be one of your five core guys, but he's an off ball number two, like Tony Allen, Marcus Smart, that kind of player, where it, I don't think he'll ever be the shooter, score, any of that kind of stuff. So you just find an, uh, a, just a different kind of um, role for him in the backcourt. But um, is that crazy for me to just say like, you know, I, New York, do it. You're not getting another star. And you know that KP, John Wall, uh, Kevin Knox, the lottery pick this year. I mean, I guess maybe they'd have to give it up. But then again, that contract is so erroneous. And it's Ernie Grunfeld that maybe they wouldn't have to give up the lottery pick this year for John Wall. I don't, I don't know. I, I think that would be my play. I mean, I'd be much happier with just KP, Kevin Knox, and that lottery pick, and Frank Nilakina and cap space, and just do what you can with, with cap space. And not necessarily, oh, we're going to get Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant, but take take a little bit of a, a lower level approach where instead of like Indiana took where it's like they didn't swing for the fences, but they got Tyreek Evans and Doug McDermott and filled in the rest oh, of that's their a roster. Play, but that's not what the Knicks are going to do. Okay. <laughs> well, sure. The yeah. Maybe the that. Knicks are going to go swing for the fences and, right. and fail miserably. Like John Wall, Kevin Durant but... and Kyrie are already popping up there. It's not like they're planning on doing something like that and taking the long-term approach and signing the Tyreek Evans of the world. Like that's, that's not what the Knicks are just built. Like that's just not in their DNA. It's not what James Dolan's doing. Yeah, I guess if you're if you have to take into account the fact that the Knicks are the Knicks, then yes, then you should. They yeah, do. it's Ernie Grenfell, it's the Knicks of the Knicks. You should always put uh, like, yeah, oh, this player's untradeable. Uh, no, they're still bad GMs. They're still bad owners. They're still like you. Not every owner and every team is operating in this um, uh, long term, sufficient, that sustainable uh, way of thinking. Like it's just not how it works. So yeah. That's I think it's the best case scenario for Knicks fans, actually. John Wall, that's your star. That would be interesting. I would think very I would very much discourage the Knicks from pursuing that. Okay. Um, that would I not be, be the play I that know. I would I, I think it'd be they'd be a playoff team, which New York in the sure, playoffs is always good. Like where are you I mean, I guess if that's what you're not going anywhere anyway. Like that there's no path to them contending anytime soon anyway. Like the <laughs> East, I mean, as long as Kawhi, if Kawhi resigns in Toronto. And uh, Boston's obviously not going anywhere. Milwaukee, if Giannis resigns there, like, what is the path? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, the Philly's right there as well. Yeah. It, but, you know, the Knicks are, if the Knicks are get the third pick and then they bring back Porzingis and Kevin Knox is Kevin Knox and, like, they could they can do some stuff longer term. Like, we're not even thinking about, like, Toronto is probably too soon for New York to contend if that's the core that they want to move forward with. Toronto with Lowry is a little bit older. Kawhi is a little bit older. As soon as Toronto's sort of on the downswing, that's when New York sort of takes their spot. And on obviously Boston. That's five year planning though, really, for New York. Right. And I guess we can't just assume <laughs> we can't assume that the Knicks are ever no. planning five years in the future. No, David Fisk. But that's what I would by that encourage point. them to do is hope yeah. to to plan a little bit further in the future than like next week. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that's happening. I would probably move Beal if I was Washington, just because I think he would give them the most back. And yeah, he's their best player right now, and he's right. their most clearly the most valuable of those three. And I don't think he can be the best player on a contender anyway. So I think I might just get off that. I think Ray Allen was uh, interviewed uh, a few weeks back, and he said the he was asked like which player reminds him the most of himself, and he said Bradley Beal. And I was like, huh, it's interesting. Well, yeah, and. That also made me think, oh, so Bradley Beal cannot be the best player on a contender, but he can be a really good um, number two. So he's kind of yeah. in that Paul I mean, He and CJ McCollum are sort of similar right. in that way. Like McCollum, if McCollum's your best player, you're not going anywhere. Like yeah. you're, and, and Beal is sort of the same way, but Beal can be a very high-level number two. Mm-hmm. And when he was a high-level number two, the Wizards were a very good team. And then when Wall decided, oh, I'm not going to play defense or really – shoot the ball and, and he's just been awful this year. Beal has to ascend and be the number one guy. And now the wizards are two and eight or whatever they are. Yeah. I would probably move Beal and Porter. Porter would be tough, but I think that's what I would do. I clear the deck. I mean, like just I would, fight the I would move John everybody Wall. possibly could, if you can move them, do it for yeah. a reasonable price. Um, and just, just really the books like with Porter or like the Joe Johnson trade where um, with Danny Ferry, that he did uh where it was just like we sent him away and we're not getting anything back we just want that salary off the books like i think yeah. that would be that'd be the play 
Yeah, I mean, I would I would do whatever they could to to get rid of those guys and just really look yourselves in the mirror and be like, this isn't working. We gotta we gotta start over here. But it's tough, and uh, I also probably wouldn't do anything until you move on from Ernie Grunfeld. I don't think I trust Ernie Grunfeld to handle this uh, uh, re- uh, re- reconsolidation with Washington. I would probably move. No, on probably not. But I would. You know, somebody I would trust is Scott Brooks because he was very good at getting Westbrook, Durant. James Harden, Serge Ibaka, all of that stuff that happened in Oklahoma City through the first few years that they were there. He's a very good developmental coach. Right. If they're going to go into the tank and really rebuild, he's already the guy for that, I think. Yeah. Well, that's true. I think he's probably safe. I think Grenfell's probably the one who goes. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, we touched on the Pacers a little bit. Um, they're the most fascinating team right now for me in the East uh i mean we haven't even really talked about victor oladipo when we're talking about these other league guards and where they fit in the pantheon and victor oladipo i can't figure it out i mean he's cold-blooded he had that game winner against the celtics the other night where he just pulled up and just said uh i'm going to end this and it was it was cruel but it was something that i was here for um but as i was thinking about like there was this really good piece on indycornrows.com about uh demontis sabonis and what he's doing especially with that second unit at the five and He's a really weird player to watch, but he's such a complete offensive player. He's good at moving around. He's good at setting screens. He's good at rolling to the rim. He's a great passer. He can ha- he has these floaters. He's just a really efficient, smart player. And he's someone that like he knows his role, where he's not going to be a guy who's going to command max money. He's he's just he's kind of in that a capella thing where it's like I think these guys kind of know that they're a cog and a really successful unit, and they're okay with not trying to be like um Joel Embiid or anybody else inside they they know who they are and they're young enough where it's like oh this is really valuable this guy he doesn't he doesn't think he can be a superstar like he knows he's a role player Miles Turner I feel like is the opposite where like he is this intriguing lottery guy out of Texas he was someone who fell a little bit um they have to decide whether or not to pay him very soon he is someone that I like. He's a vacuum guy where it's like he seems like he should be the perfect five in today's NBA. But then again, you can't pay Sabonis and Turner. Um, it It's one of those things where I've moved more and more towards like, what if Turner is like their best trade chip? And like, instead of maxing him out and doing like a Miles uh, or an Otto Porter thing where you just give this guy all this money in the world and you know that it's never going to live up. Like, I don't think he's ever going to become a star. I think he's going to be a really good third or fourth guy but bad young is just a really good player for them and every two-man lineup you look up with that and uh, oladipo and other guys like that it, it just works on the floor and sabonis's numbers are great i i wonder if that's the play it's like go the cheap route with sabonis he's gonna work the numbers gonna be good um and you move turner for uh maybe a lottery pick or maybe you find a way to turn turner into something interesting because the Pacers are going to get Tyreek Evans, Bojan Bogdanovic is of the world in free agency, but they're not going to get another star. And maybe their only avenue to do so is by um, saying, you know what, we like Miles Turner, but we can probably get the closest thing to a sidekick to Victor Oladipo by moving him. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting. I mean, obviously those two guys, they, those two guys really cannot play together. They're both right. centers and the, the thing with Sabonis is that you can run a lot of stuff through him as sort of a, a Jokic light type of player, mm-hmm. but he's also Jokic-esque on defense, which right. makes it very difficult. And obviously Denver has sort of unlocked enough offense and, you know, a very high level offense and enough defense to make it work. Is, is there going to be that? Can, can they do that in Indiana? And it's very difficult to do that. Sabonis plays the most important position defensively on the floor and is a not very good defensive player. He's good. He's fine. But Turner is much better than he is on that end of the floor. And Turner's not even, hasn't even gotten to where he might get someday. You know, Turner's got a lot more upside defensively. Sabonis really kind of doesn't just because of the type of player he is. But then Turner doesn't have the offensive upside that Sabonis has. And Sabonis has this you can run an entire offense through DeMontis Sabonis at the elbows and, and with the ball in his hands in a way that you can sort of do the same thing with Jokic. Obviously he's not as good as Jokic, but you can see the same sort of the same sort of offense can be run through both guys. Whereas Turner is entirely dependent on offense. He is never going to be 
somebody you can just give the ball to and he's going to make good things happen for himself and everybody else. He's Which a dependent wanted, talent. Right? Like that's what they've been dying for Turner to become. And I just, I'm with you. I don't think that's ever coming. I don't think so either, but I think it's fine if it never does come. If, if Victor Oladipo is your guy with the ball in his hands and Darren Collison or whoever is, is the, the point guard, the, the, the guy playing next to Victor Oladipo in the backcourt, they can cobble together enough creation that they don't need the center to do it. And that Sabonis can be more of a backup center who comes in for Turner and can run the offense when Oladipo and Turner are off the floor. You know, I don't, I'm not sure that it necessarily has to be one or the other, obviously paying both guys to play center together because when they can't play center, that's a bad idea because tying up so much of your cap in centers is just never a good idea in this in today's day and age so it's a very difficult situation because both guys are very good players both guys are very different players both guys have their roles on this team as constructed but when it comes time to pay one or the other they've obviously already paid turner sabonis is going to want not maybe not four years 80 million but he's going to want something in starter range you know are you willing to pay $35 $35 million for two centers who can't play together. That's yeah, a lot that of money. Be, and it would be just, I mean, Kevin Pritchard cannot do something like that. Like that would just be fucking ludicrous. Like, no, you can't do that. that that's the, dumb. the one way that he can do that. And that because of the, the way the timing is going to work out with all of this is that Sabonis, I believe, and now I'm, I'm second guessing myself here. So let me look it up real quick while we talk about this. This is great radio. I think Sabonis is going to be a free agent at the end of this year is what I'm trying to get at. I think they both are, uh, right? Well, so well, Turner got the extension, so he's already he, locked oh, in. he did get the t- extension. Okay. He got the $20 million a year extension. So we're looking at Sabonis, who is going to be a free agent at the end of next season. So this isn't even a thing that they even need to think about this year because they've got him for $3.5 million for 2019-20 as well. So really, they've got this year and next year to try to figure this out before Sabonis gets expensive. So it's not even this year. They've got two more years to really to really figure this out and to use the cap space. This this the, the point I was getting at here is that the cap space, either this coming summer or the summer of 2020, they need to just strike when the iron is hot, use all of that remaining cap space, then use bird rights on Sabonis to go over the cap it's going to take convincing of ownership that, hey, you need to shell out for this team because we're good. It's going to be something where the on-court product is going to have to support that. They're going to have to be very good this year. They're going to have to be very good next year with some free agent additions between now and 2020. Then you go over the top for Sabonis. Then it doesn't really matter how much of the cap you're using really for Sabonis because you're not signing him with cap space. You're signing him with his bird rights, which they will have by the time he hits restricted free agency. They can also sort of hardball him in restricted free agency if they want to. Centers around the league are going to be a little bit, you know, there's always, there's a million centers and, and the fact that Sabonis can't really play defense is going to be an issue. So they've got some advantages. They've got two years to figure this out. They've got lots of cap space between now and then. They can mm-hmm. use all that cap space and then re-sign Sabonis to where he's more of an extra on top of all their cap space rather than using cap space to bring him in the way that Washington did with Jan Mahimi. They had Portant and then used a bunch of cap space on Mahimi when that made no sense. Right Here, they've got Turner. They've got Sabonis. They could use all that cap space, which could be like $30, $40 million of cap space, and yeah. then be signed Sabonis on top of it. So that's, that's where they can get away with Turner and Sabonis, each making, you know, Turner making 18 and, and Sabonis making 13, 14, 15, and still have the rest of the team around them because they're not going to use cap space on Sabonis. Wouldn't you just love Miles Turner for Jimmy Butler? That doesn't make a ton of sense for Minnesota. Oh, they no, have it, Tom Thibodeau wants a wants. I mean, he loves bigs. Taj Gibson, Gorgie Jang. Carl yeah, Anthony but Towns. Turner and Towns aren't playing together. I you don't, don't think so. I think that actually might. I mean, work. it could, but like, it's not. It'd be better than Gibson and uh, Towns, I think. I guess Gibson's I think a that better would be defender. Fine. I really do. I think those two actually together would actually be weirdly intriguing. It'd be it'd be interesting. I don't think it would work long term. Yeah, but I, I don't think. think but you also got to think of like what Tom Thibodeau so. would want. Like, is there a yeah. better intriguing guy he can play a lot of minutes right now um, in a Jimmy Butler trade that uh, matches Miles Turner outside of Josh Richardson and guys like that? But yeah, I mean, uh, Josh Richardson. I don't know. I would love to see Jimmy Butler play next to Oladipo for a year. I'd love to see what that team looks like in the East. 
I would be very surprised if the uh, Indiana Pacers were even oh, in no. that conversation. It, no, they're definitely But not. it would be an interesting trade, that's for sure. Right. I, I don't know. I guess I just want to see what another wing star next to Oladipo looks like. I don't want to see like another guard with Oladipo. Like, I don't want that at all. Like, part of the reason I enjoy watching the Pacers so much is it's just all Oladipo all the time because he's playing next to Darren Collison and Corey Joseph, who are perfect guys to have off ball who aren't stars and don't command the ball can play off ball whatever um they're just background characters to oladipo i don't want to see any more of these beal wall combos mccollum lillard no 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 no. i want to see oladipo with like an elite wing that can do everything like kind of like um there was a former indiana pacer i think his name was paul george i believe it was now that would be interesting paul george if he'd gone back this summer i was we had talked about our I had talked about that with with a few people before he decided to go back to Oklahoma City that that would be super interesting because obviously, you know, now I think we can say that Indiana got the better of that deal because they have Sabonis and Oladipo and Oladipo is the best player in that trade. He's a better player than Paul George right now. Really? And okay. Oh, yes. yeah. Okay. And he's on a better contract for sure. Twenty one million dollars for the next three seasons, whereas mm-hmm. uh Whereas Paul George is on this, you know, mammoth deal for whatever, 150% of that. Yeah. You know, I think it's, uh, I think I would, I would rather have Oladipo, even not including the contract. Oladipo is a better player right now than Paul George. And then you add in DeMontis Solano's on top of that. And it's clear that Indiana just killed it with that trade. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, big, uh, big ups to, to Kevin Pritchard for getting that done. Cause nobody thought that that was, nobody thought we would say that a year ago. Or, or, you know, a year and a half ago when they made that trade. So, you know, it's, it's worked out for the best for them. I think Oladipo, I think they're going to use their cap space at some point in the next couple of years to really strike when, uh, when they, you know, when they have the, the opportunity to really pair somebody next to Oladipo who makes a ton of sense, whether that's Jimmy Butler, who's, who could be a free agent, they can use their cap space on him. Somebody like that would be, would be really interesting for this team. And if they make a bunch of noise in the East and, and, make the conference semifinals and push somebody, you know, push a Milwaukee, a Boston, a Toronto to, to seven games. If they can, let's say they're the I mean, four they five with, last year. Yeah. You know, and they, they push Cleveland. Let's say they're the four five and they beat Philadelphia and they can say, I would take them in a series over Philadelphia right now, unless Philadelphia solves their wing issues. I, I don't think Philadelphia could beat the Pacers in a seven game series. Yeah. I think Indiana might be a better team than, than Philadelphia. And especially in a series, they can throw Thad Young on Ben Simmons. It'd be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a fascinating series. And Thaddeus Young would be perfect for, for to defend, uh, to defend Ben Simmons because Great. of his size and his quickness and just his smarts and just everything about Thaddeus Young. And who so, could not want to see uh, Markel Fultz versus Victor Oladipo? Yeah. I mean, there would be some <laughs> issues with that. <laughs> uh, I would imagine Simmons might even guard Oladipo. Covington yeah. as well would would probably t- take some time. I'm not sure Fultz would. Fultz would probably guard Darren Collison or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it would that would be a really interesting series. But if they win that series, then they push Boston to seven games. They push Toronto to seven games. They can make a pitch to free agents of like right, right there. We're so close to Toronto. They could make a pitch to Kawhi Leonard. Hey, we're mm. really close to Toronto. If you were there. We could really swing this toward our favor. So, way, like you could tell me that their roster outside of the, that's the difference between Toronto and Indiana right now is just the the wing. Uh, yeah, they've got wing. they're one superstar short, and they right. you know I think they're hoping that that Miles Turner can get there, but he's not. Uh, it's not happening. Yeah. I, we can go that's ahead not, on the Chase Owens podcast. Jeff and I have put it to bed. Miles Turner superstar, or even just like all star, is not happening. Just good player. All-star he's a good player. Maybe happening because of his stature in the Eastern Conference, but he's not like an All NBA star. He's not. He's a third banana. Right. And for twenty one or for eighteen million dollars, that's probably okay if Would they you can get him Kevin Love. No, not at all. Uh, no, I wouldn't. And I, I no, I would. I would very much rather have Miles Turner than Kevin Love, especially on this team as young as mm-hmm. they are. The, the fact that they've got Turner on a better contract for just as many years, I think they, they would rather have uh, they would rather have Turner. I think he makes more sense as a dependent talent next to Oladipo. He would make more sense next to an Oladipo Jimmy Butler, Oladipo Kawhi Leonard, Oladipo whatever combination yeah. because he could st- take a step back offensively, still be a pick and pop guy, still be a, a good rebounder, still be a good defender, and fit 
fit a, a situation like that. And obviously, Love can do some of those things, but he's on the older side, and I would, I just, I, I would rather have uh, Miles Turner if I were Indiana. All right. What well, last thing? Then we'll go. Ten seconds on Doug McDermott and his uh, defensive rating in all of his lineups being like eighty-eight point seven per hundred possessions. How is that possible? And why is Doug McDermott uh, succeeding so nicely in Indiana? Um, I think it has more to do with a very, very, very small sample size. Twenty-one so minutes. How many more minutes do you need? I would need at <laughs> least another ten to fifteen games worth of him okay. playing to to really think that he's. He's Every doing lineup he's in, man, it's like plus twenty five overall. It's it's wild, and that's fine. I I just don't. I, I maybe I'm not. I'm not going to give him the credit for that. It can be something that happens to him, and he happens to be next to it when it happens. But I'm not sure that he's the driver for why their offense and defense are just through the roof. His usage rate's super low. He's not ever been a fantastic defender. He's fine. But, you know, and he's shooting the ball well, but his usage rate is low. He's not a fantastic passer, though he's been a better passer this year than he really ever has been, I think. Um, so it's I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't give him much of the credit for that stuff. I think Nate McMillan is a very good coach. I think the fact that their team is mostly got that continuity from last year and they're putting McDermott in some advent, advantageous situations to use a very few number of possessions to make a big impact and then defensively they're they're making it work with him there's a lot of young spurs vibes with indiana for me like nate mcmillan is maybe you never know he we all were wrong about nate mcmillan when he got promoted to head coach after vogel got fired we were very wrong about indiana literally just across the board yes you know it was uh, kevin pritchard deserved to be fired because you know it was really we've been Pritchard and, and McMillan do just, they know what they're doing. They're smart. They're better. They, they know more than we do, which shouldn't surprise anybody, but continues to surprise us as we write them off year after year. Well, this has been great, Jeff. I'm glad we were able to do this tonight. We can uh, check out your site, which I did not say at the top of the show, but um, earlybirdrights.com. That is, uh, what, what should we call that? Is that your, your uh, project? Is that your baby? What is that? Yeah, it's my baby, I guess. Okay. Uh, I'm the, the the sole proprietor of earlybirdrights.com. We uh, I've got scouting reports on 440 different NBA players up there where you can see grades from 1 to 25 and 28 different attributes, sort of a more um, – it's not analytics-driven, but it's a – you can see it better. It's not just a bunch of sentences. You can see visually how things work out. You could check that out on Early Bird Rights. All 30 teams have their cap situation updated, you know, within five minutes of transactions happening. I'm very, you know, on top of that during the summer, during the extension season, all that stuff. So if you're interested in where Indiana is going to get all this cap space to sign Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, or whoever they're going to sign next summer or the summer after, you can find all that information over there on Early Bird Rights. I write articles about different plays that teams are running, whatever I'm seeing throughout the league. So, you know, you can uh, you can pretty much find whatever you need if you're really if you really want to dive super deep into like the nuances of the league, if you're looking for like not, not fluff stuff, but sort of more like player quotes or, or funny things that happen on the court, that's, this is not the site for you. But if you really want to dive deep into how teams are making decisions, how coaches are making decisions, which players are, are better than others, stuff like that. I think uh, early bird rights is really the place for you. I think it's the place for everybody, especially if you're a basketball fan, Jeff. So I appreciate it, man. Uh, We will have to do this again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Jeff. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.